Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne and welcome to the ACA Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the ACA Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Coyne. This is episode 52. Now, besides all the great guests of the podcast, the people who really help us bring this podcast to you and the other coaches, physios, teachers out there is Valid Performance. They make the Nord board, the force frame, the human check and four steps. I'm a massive fan of four steps with jump and mid-thigh pull diagnostics. We've also been starting to use four steps with shoulders with the ash test and are looking at complementing this with the force frame for some internal external rotation assessments at the UFC Performance Institute. And this is all due to the relative amount of shoulder issues we see with the MMA athletes in the UFC Academy. So... Look, in my experience, all of Val's products, super user-friendly, give you data you can action immediately. They're the top of the list if I could recommend them. So, look, if you're in the market, please reach out to them, valperformance.com, or shoot them an email, info at valperformance.com. Now, we've got an awesome guest for episode number 52. Carmen Bott, she's been coached for over 20 years, considered a resource in applied strength and conditioning for combat and collision sport athletes, in particular wrestlers. Uh, she lectures and coaches internationally. She's also a faculty member of the Department of Kinesiology, at Langara College in Vancouver, also a lecturer at Simon Fraser University. Has mentioned lots and lots of work with wrestlers. She also has a book called The Wrestler's Edge, which although it's all about physical preparation of wrestlers, there are definitely things you can take from it for any sport you work with, as this podcast episode will show. So without further ado, let's get into this. Okay. ASCA podcast time. We've got the one and only Carmen Bott on the line, all the way from Canada. Carmen, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. Appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. So, look, we start these podcasts. We started at the start, and uh, I'd really love to know how and why did it all begin for you? What, what's your sort of experience in sport? I know you're involved in academics as well. Um, please enlighten us. Yeah, definitely. I, I certainly began in sport. I didn't begin in academia. I was a, uh, did a very short run as a personal fitness trainer at a very young age while I was in university and uh, you know, kind of quickly realized that the general population might not have been the best uh, uh, client group for me. So I did some volunteering with the women's basketball program at a college. So you know, for the Americans listening, it would be like a JUCO um, situation. And for the other people listening, it would be like a transfer institution. And I really enjoyed that. So when I transferred to the University of British Columbia to complete my undergrad degree, I began working with women's basketball there. And I actually stayed with that program for quite a number of years, six years. During that time, I took a bit of a short stint uh, away and moved to Malaysia. And um, I got to Malaysia, I was quite young, I was 24. I'd only been coaching athletes for three years at that point, so I was very nervous and very apprehensive as to what to expect. But, um, you know, adventure awaited and I thought, you know, this is life and this is what it's all about, so let's just go for it. And I, I arrived and was in charge of all of their um, combative and form sport athletes. So I had you know, athletes that were involved in, say, diving and rhythmic gymnastics and synchronized swimming. And then I had um, Taekwondo athletes and judokas and wrestlers. 
And that was unique and interesting because um, those were not my sport background. I was always a team sport athlete. So um, that was interesting. And I kind of uh, began with just building relationships with coaches and um, trying to learn as much as I could about the sports and the rules. So I spent a lot of time, honestly, just sitting in practices and and sitting and talking to coaches and, and just immersing myself in the culture there. And um, when I came back to Canada, I had a, you know, a lot more experience because I literally coached, you know, 10, 10 hours a day, every day and, and got back and resumed my, my role with the university and the women's basketball program and was fortunate that we won a few national titles when I was with that program. So that was, huge at a, such a young age to be part of a performance team that was able to to achieve a win like that or or that type of recognition and and during that time too I spent a lot of um time with hockey players so being Canadian that seems a little bit cliche but um there are a lot of uh WHL and NHL athletes that trained out where I was living and the person I worked for at that time was a strength coach in the NHL so he brought me on with some other coaches to work like summer camps, which is off season training for ice hockey. So I really spent my twenties working with those populations. And then I completed some graduate work at the university and got my master's. And that was then when I thought, you know, I love coaching. Uh, this is fantastic. I'm not really sure if I can make a, a full-time career out of it. Cause back then the universities in Canada didn't have full-time strength and conditioning coaches. So it wasn't quite the American model yet. Um, we were quite a ways behind. So there was really no full-time salary type of employment. And I was always, you know, quite studious and interested in research, um, not necessarily doing the research, but reading it. I was very keen to do that. So, and apply it. So I um, spent some time shadowing a woman who I look to as a mentor, who's a sports psychologist, who was a prof. And I went to work with her a few times and thought, you know, this, gig teaching seems pretty awesome. So I, I actually began teaching before I was done graduate school. The university hired me on in good faith and said, you better pass your thesis. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be really embarrassed um, that we've hired you. So a little bit of pressure, which I tend to like to do to myself. And um, began teaching. I was teaching by the age of 30 at the university and didn't really kind of look back after that. I've always juggled the two. And um, over the years, and so it's been 24 years of coaching and 13, 14 years now of teaching. And I've always, you know, liked to do a little bit of both. I've been fortunate to have time off usually in the winter from teaching because of my role at the college. And uh, during that time, I'm usually working with athletes in their off season. And um, yeah, and now I work mostly with combative and, and collision sport athletes, but I have lots of experience even with triathletes and, and different type of, of clients at different levels too, you know, from recreation up to a national, you know, team. And um, yeah, so that's kind of where, where I'm at with a coaching role at, at this point in time, juggling, juggling both roles. And like I said to you tonight, I had a coaching session with a bunch of seven to 11 year olds. So that was uh, interesting as well. I'm just exploring that at the moment. Mm, cool, cool, mm. cool. Hey, what was your thesis on? My thesis was actually, uh, unfortunately, I bit off a lot more than I probably could have chewed back then, but I was very curious, not only about looking at methods to build power in basketball players, uh, explosive power, and 
I was also really interested in load monitoring. So back then we didn't have sophisticated, you know, devices like HRV monitoring. We didn't have um, GPS devices. So we did the old school trip methods, the session RPEs, multiplying that by, you know, duration. Because I had analyzed the sport of basketball so extensively, I also had a really good idea on how to educate the athletes and what might be considered higher doses in a basketball practice or in a game. So I did a, a combination study looking at um, adaptations from a complex training prescription over eight weeks in a trained population of basketball players, but I also monitored adaptation and we tried to find relationships between athletes that were considered you know, maladaptive or not adapting to the training and, and performance. And um, we were able to find that the complex training worked in terms of improving explosive power in, as measured by vertical jump. Um, but we, we had a tough time trying to really put our finger on um, you know, markers of overtraining, markers of overreaching and adaptation with that population and also looking at performance. So that part of it, I, I would have to say, I'm not really proud of because I was young and, and quite inexperienced. And there wasn't a lot of people doing load monitoring back then um, with team sports. I mean, it's much easier to quantify track and field, you know, um, weightlifting. But when you're dealing with practices, games, travel, plus weight room work, plyometrics work, workout on the track. And I did, I ran all of those sessions. You know, it was a lot for me back then to kind of figure out um, how to quantify it. So, mm, mm. Yeah. Interesting. interesting. Definitely interesting. Even just the RPE link with uh, whether people are, are getting better with the complex training or not getting better with the complex training is, uh, is are there higher RPEs for people that aren't getting better or, or vice versa? Um, what, well, what you know, you just struck my memory because I remember actually looking through the logbooks because we I collected the logbooks at the end of the training, uh, the intervention period, which like I said, was eight weeks. And I had a control group. I had a, they were matched for the same sport age, even VO2. So basic fitness level, anthropometry, things were quite well matched. But of course, the control group didn't receive the intervention. So my treatment group um, I remember looking at their logs and noticing quite clearly that my bigger athletes, like my posts, my fours and fives, were rating, for example, plyometrics as very intense. Whereas my guards, so these girls are 145 pounds, you know, 60, sort of 63 kilos, were saying, oh, this is a three, this is a two. You know, they're just kind of scampering around the basketball court like this is a workout. So that in of itself, I thought was quite valuable just because you know mass of an athlete is a stressor of in of itself right when you have a whole team of, of such different body types and I've taken that information now that I work with football players um, these are gridiron athletes I have a client right now that's 325 pounds in the same training session as a wide receiver that's 200 pounds so how do I manipulate their loads in a training session um, without overstressing the, the heavier athlete right? And then making sure that the lighter athlete that's more springy and, and just doesn't rate the uh, exercises as, 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 you know, sort of intense, um, how do I you know, sort of shuffle that around? So that was, that was good practical learning sort of on my end as a coach, especially when you're working with a group of such diverse um, body types. Mm. 
hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, all, all those, uh, all those things. The bigger bodies are just—they go through more work, and and you got to respect that. You really do. Absolutely. Like even the thermoregulatory stress that bigger athletes um, undergo is significant compared to you know lighter, leaner kids. So mm. that was a good learning experience. Cool, cool, cool. And I know you've got a program. Maybe it's it's the Wrestlers Edge. Uh, yeah. that, that you run. Can, can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, um, that evolved because when I was working with Wrestling Canada, I was with their program for close to four years on the women's side. And, you know, because I wasn't a wrestler, I really became um, immersed in the sport um, from that sort of analyzing the literature side of things. And I, I literally read everything that I could get my hands on. I managed to find, um, a few kind um, Americans that will, would translate Russian research into English for me. So I have a mentor in the States that does that and um, was fortunate enough to hook up with uh, basically a group of wrestling researchers around the world where I had access to their journals, which wouldn't be kind of common, commonly accessible through PubMed or a normal search engine. So I just started reading and learning and reading and learning. And I thought, you know what, like this is, I've got to get some of this information out to more people than just the, the five athletes that I'm currently coaching. So I decided to basically write, I guess we could call it a book, but it is a training program where athletes, you know, it's all digital. So they would download it in a PDF type format and they can follow it from the beginning of their off season all the way to their season throughout their season and then into an active rest type phase at the end of their season it's it, it's based on the assumption that they're probably high school or collegiate level where they actually have a clear season i have been able to um, counsel people that have purchased it or coach them a bit online in terms of adapting it to maybe international competition where they're competing all year and we're highlighting the more important competitions and i have a handful of uh, bjj athletes that are also following it and a guy just uh won the national championship no sorry he won worlds my mistake in the u.s this past june so i'm not sure what weight class he was in because i don't train him but it was another young uh, trainer who's quite good who had basically followed the program and kind of picked my brain a little bit um with the development with this kid and, and he did really well so that that's great you know i'm really happy to hear that some of the stuff that i've sifted through is filtering out to people and really that's I've never been a very good researcher. I get bored easily. So I would rather just keep learning and, and just summarizing information. And if I can give it to people or sell it to people or speak about it and share it, then hopefully it trickles down. So oh, that's cool. kind of how it evolved. Yeah. yeah. Cool. 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 Sounds, sounds very interesting. Very interesting. Um, the next thing I want to talk to you about, I know you've got a real speciality in power and speed endurance. So first of all, I've got to ask you, how do we how do we define this like power speed endurance and then uh, what type of athletes are is it applicable for i think you know i i can't take any credit for defining it really the russians were the ones that i think um did such a great job a of classifying sport and b of taking um you know the construct or the quality of just endurance and you know that the triangle that Bompa came up with where he has endurance at one tip of the triangle, he's got speed at one tip. 
and then he's got force, which is actually you know strength at one tip. And then if you you start looking at the sides of the triangle and you go, okay, well, it's it's really not enough to think that an athlete just needs to be strong. And it's really not enough to, to think they need to be endurance because usually when people think about endurance, they think the O2 max, they think about cardiovascular capacity, aerobic capacity, aerobic power. And with the the athletes I see, they need to be able to repeat very intense muscular efforts over and over and over in their sport. And in the case of wrestling or in, in the linemen in football, it's against an opponent, against external resistance. And when I analyzed the sport further in both, both sports, discovered that wrestling and, and football in, in terms of linemen are, they're both static dynamic sports. They're not dynamic sports. So there are elements where there is some sort of pausing, holding, and then asserting, you know, strength against that resistance. So basically the Russians came up with the term special endurance. And then the subcategories of that, which evolved from that triangle were, you know, strength endurance, speed endurance, power endurance. And that became a bit of a continuum. So of course the, the speed side, you know, is, a higher velocity. The power side is a mix of the speed and the strength. And then the strength endurance side is, it doesn't have that element of, of, of speed, right? So we're repeating heavy efforts over time, but not as fast as we would be if it was a, a power-based exercise or a power-based protocol. So I, I don't know if I've talked to you in a circle here. I tend to do that. I apologize. But um, that's kind of my definitions, I guess, of, of those qualities. And so when I look at endurance, I look far beyond the O2 max and cardiorespiratory ability and capacity. And I'm very interested in what's happening at the muscle level. I'm interested in movement. Movement matters, like how people move. Um, and strength is important. But I, I'm a bit arrogant, I guess, to say that I think getting guys strong is really easy. Like if I have a 19 year old male that's full of the beans, I can get him real strong, real fast. But the the qualities of endurance and power endurance that takes time and that takes some nuance and very specific training protocols with very specific um, efforts, rest periods, and I and and particular interventions whereby the acid levels don't get out of control, so that way they can continue to do work over time. Hundred mm, percent. Yeah. No. Look. Get it. Yeah, I agree with you. Getting people strong, especially if they're young and and never been seen a weight room, it's it's a piece of cake. Um, it is. Yeah. You know. But, good for yeah. me. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now yeah. What, yeah. Right? It makes it makes it look real real good in the first six months. Um, yeah. But uh, can, can you give the listeners an example of what would be uh, strength endurance, what would be power endurance, and what would be speed endurance in in maybe a sport like wrestling? Yeah, sure. So if I wanted to improve the quality of speed endurance, maybe I'll start there. Um, I would do sprinting, right? And with wrestlers, my, my sprint like lengths and sort of the distances are quite short. I might have athletes sprinting for up to you know, 20, 30 meters, depending on how technically they're proficient they are. One of my girls, Mallory, who won a bronze medal at Worlds last year, she's quite She's quite um, good at sprinting because I've coached her a lot on the mechanics so she doesn't get injured doing that particular modality of work. So I always tell, you know, new coaches, always pick your modality first, you know, that's, and then build your protocol around that. And that modality will be selected based on really the, 
the physical literacy of that athlete, right? You're not going to choose sprinting, even though it, it does build speed, right? It, it may not be the ideal. So I'd have them do repeat sprinting, right? For short periods of time with long, long rest periods. It's, you know, kind of simple. I, I love using hills. So one of the protocols we used leading up to the world championships was we'd find a, a hill that's relatively steep, have the athlete sprint to the top. And usually that time is going to take anywhere from depending on the athlete and depending on how well trained they are in their alactic capacity, anywhere from six seconds up to maybe 11 seconds. Um, if they're starting to slow down, then that, that distance is too long. And then I'd give them a longer rest period, like anywhere from 60 to 90 seconds. And again, depending on the athlete, um, I'm a big fan of, of either active recovery or something called fast and loose. So the athletes just standing there shaking the meat off their bones or shaking their hands or shaking their, their arms and their legs. And then they would re repeat that task, right? And so then you'd have a set of intervals whereby you might, you might have six, you might have seven, you might have eight, you might have up to 10. And that's going to depend on how conditioned your athlete is. Then from there, I would have them do some type of aerobic work. So maybe um, at, at the university, we have a track that is actually right attached to this hill that I love. So it's perfect. Um, I'm lazy. I don't like looking for new places to train. So that's what we're doing. And then athlete runs around the track and, you know, clears the acid, recycles it back to uh, glucose or whatever needs to happen. And they hit the, the intervals again. So they might do three sets of that for a speed endurance workout. Now, if I wanted to build power endurance, that's where load comes in. I love kettlebells. Um, you know, I'm not a kettlebell you know, um, person in terms of that's the only tool I use, but I love them for building power endurance. They're safe. I don't injure my kids. Um, the movements are basic. They're raw, rudimentary. So we might use a heavy swing protocol so for females, I might have them swing a 32 kilo bell, not a 12, not a 16. I mean, these are athletes. They, and we're humming, we're moving that bell as fast as possible over a, maybe a set time period of 10 seconds, eight seconds. And it would be a similar protocol to what I just outlined on the speed endurance. Um, except now we've added the load, right? Um, and then I love again to use the serial intervention where they do a block of sets, do some aerobic work, come back and do another block of sets, aerobic work, do another block of sets. Now for the gen pop, they probably look at that workout and go, oh my God, that's horrible. It's so boring. Um, for athletes, they actually like it. And they love, um, one, of the, one of the guys that I trained was actually in the UFC. He is in the UFC right now. I, I won't mention his name, but I worked, he's a heavyweight. I worked with him for, for the last year and a half. And we did a very similar protocol with him. He's a big guy. And he just loved this idea of doing the aerobic work in between. He just found it mentally a, a break. Because then when he went back to the work, he was able to fully engage both physically and mentally. So there's that psycho psychological piece too. And I can get more out of the athlete. So with power endurance training, it's very important that that work, I think, is supervised because they need to really understand how vigorous and violent they need to move that weight or move their body. The strength side of, endur of, of endurance, I would do only really far away from competition in the off season. 
and um, like in a GPP type phase. And I tend to like to use like a long cycle with kettlebells where the athlete might do like a clean and press with the kettlebell. So we're not really worried too much about velocity at this point. The weight is moderate to heavy. And again, they're doing work for an X amount of time. Um, sometimes with strength endurance protocols, I'll have them go longer. So I'm actually, you know, maybe moving more into oxidative metabolism. So having them do more like minutes on end, possibly starting with two minute, one minute intervals, moving up to two. I have some athletes that can do long cycles for 10 minutes straight um, without putting the weight down, um, depending on their fitness level, right? So it's for your listeners, I think the most important thing they need to know, and this is empowering. I wish people told me this when I was a young coach. It's like, just watch them. And if they look tired, give them a rest, you know? Just make a note of it, that they weren't able to complete that work today. And maybe that was your intention. You had set the prescription, but they can't, they can't complete it. So if they can't complete it well, and their form is, you know, they can't maintain the rate, which is the, you know, the amount of repetitions per unit of time, or they, they start breaking down in terms of their technique, give them a rest, you know, send them for a five minute jog and then come back and, and try another set or change your work to rest periods. There's so, just, there's just, sorry yeah. to there's just too much common sense coming out of your mouth right oh, now. Oh, no, sorry, really? <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, it's funny how you kind of come full circle, and I'm sure, you know, you're a veteran in the game, and, and there's a lot of cool stuff out there, and I get that, and it's exciting, and I, I'm a teacher, so I have students that ask me stuff all the time, and it, I don't want to crush them and burst their bubble. I want to be enthusiastic and supportive of their ideas, but sometimes their ideas really aren't common sense. It's based on, on, on fads, right, and trend. And I said, like, it's all good if you want to listen to cool music and wear cool clothes. Like, I'm all for that. I love fashion. But when it comes to training, like, let's just do that, what works and what's going to give you the results. And at the end of the day, it's often not anything really that glamorous or kind of outside of the box, right? You go back to your basic knowledge of metabolism and you go, okay, this is the amount of work I'm doing. Therefore, in this pathway at this rate, and if I'm like working as hard as I can, like sprinting or swinging a kettlebell or doing jump squats, then you have to rest because the quality of that work shouldn't decline too much it's going to decline decline a little bit that's a normal side effect of exercise and, and of becoming slightly acidic but it, it you don't want to you know go to the point where every set diminishes and I, one of my mentors said to me once he said what you do should be repeatable right so if i do a workout on monday this week and I have the intention of doing it the following Monday and, and adding a bit of volume. For example, if I can't repeat that and then do all my normal training in between, then it wasn't repeatable and it was probably a, too high of a dose. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have to make an adjustment and tweak, right? So, yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Now that's, that's gold. Yeah. You can have, you can, as, as a uh, track and field coach and like you can have all these, uh, fancy work to rest ratios but if a guy ain't ready to go he's not ready to go to do the rep you know what i mean if the reps are too hard you just got to rest a bit more like it's uh, it's 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 common sense especially um, too like the goal is to get to the fast guys the fast fibers right mm -hmm. 
if you want to get to the fast fibers, you, you need to rest. If you want to continue to do, to work your slow fibers and, and smash the crap out of your sarcolemma and permeate it and drive acid in there and, and get huge, then by all means, follow the, the German volume program, right? And, and do your hypertrophy stuff. But, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of almost ignoring, like to me, that a type, type one muscle fiber for a combative athlete is like a garburator. It's, it's sole purpose is to oxidize lactate. That's your job, slow twitch. Fast twitch, get all the press, in my opinion. So if you want to hit those guys and you want to stress them and you want to make them develop and you want to make them more oxidative, you have to have very targeted work. If you miss the target, you will recruit the slow ones and you will not be as explosive as you could be. Mm, yes, yeah. yes, 100% agree. Hey, I have a little question about, uh, two questions actually from, from what you said. In the aerobic work, when they're just jogging around the track in between, say, the speed endurance reps or the power endurance mm -hmm. reps, how long will that normally be in between sets? Good question. Yeah, I uh, program anywhere between six and ten minutes. Mm. It cool. depends on the, on the athlete. So start on the conservative side and give them ten. I use a very, very sophisticated method of, uh, of intensity, and it's called the talk test. <laughs> so in other words... I jog with them and we talk mm. and if they can chat and I know they're under their threshold and I know that they're working aerobically or, or their dominant system at this point is aerobic. You know, in all of our textbooks in school, we learned about phosphocreatine resynthesis and we learned about time, right? So we learned that to optimally resynthesize phosphocreatine, it's like five to eight minutes. Well, a couple of years ago, I did a ton of reading just in that one area pretty much went cross-eyed trying to figure this out. And after reading multiple papers, there was no consensus on rest time. So what they found though, what was common and what seemed to work the best was active recovery over passive. Interesting. So that's kind of my rule of thumb that evolved out of what I read. Unless I interpreted all of this research incorrectly, which you know, maybe I would encourage your readers not to take my word for it, but to get in there and, and read a bit too. But it's been uh, my experience that uh, athletes that do aerobic recovery in between those mini sets tend to produce the same amount of power because I can measure, especially with speed work, I, I basically can measure it, right? Mm -hmm. I have a timer, I have a distance. If they can hit that, that distance in a certain amount of time, I know that they are recovered. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty simple or if you've got them doing their jumps on a jump mat or something that or swinging a kettlebell um, for 10 seconds how many swings did they accomplish in that unit of time well if they can maintain that that exact same work amount of work each set then you know that they're and they look like they're working right we don't want them just kind of cruising along then we know that we've given them sort of an optimal modality of rest as well as maybe perhaps the, the length of rest Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so yeah, I I I, I totally agree that it's it's uh, you can monitor it and you can and you can see and also I think it depends on the sport you're working with too. Like obviously, a uh, a sprinter might just want to sit there and and do nothing. You know what I mean? He doesn't want to get jog around the track. But a wrestler or a martial arts athlete, if they're sitting there doing nothing, they're going to be going, oh, I'm I'm not coming back for another training session. We're not doing enough work. 
That's actually a great point. Yeah, you kind of have to sometimes understand that psychology, right? And and I think sometimes as a coach, you need to go with it. You, you know, you don't need to necessarily be a dictator and say, well, this is exactly how it should be, and this is the science. If the if the recovery modality produces anxiety in the athlete, then you kind of need to be be observant of of that, right? And, and make sure that you're, you're giving them something where they feel we all like to feel productive, right? So if they feel productive, then, and then the velocity at which they recover at, that's going to differ, you know, from athlete to athlete too. I've had wrestlers that can keep quite a, quite a fast pace during their recovery, but their highest, like their peak power output isn't as high. Mm -hmm. Then I have other wrestlers where their peak power is really high and they, when they do their active recovery, it's like, I call it a, a soccer yog. So they just kind of like shuffle around the track. You know, they're still working. That would be but, me. That would be Yeah, me. I'm the same. I'm, yeah, I'm Miss, Miss Twitch. I can jump and sprint and then I need to like, okay, I'm good. I need to rest. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, that's yeah. a, the, the next thing that sort of came to mind was that you talked about doing, uh, say, increasing the amount of swings or keeping the same amount of swings in a certain block of time, say in your power endurance, or keeping the same times for your 20 to 30 meter sprints, for your power and speed endurance. For your strength endurance, you talked about increasing the duration, potentially from one minute to two minutes, all the way up to 10 minutes. Is that how you normally, was that how you'd normally sort of uh, go about training these things as you keep the power and speed always trying to uh, either do more repetitions in the same block of time and the strength do say a constant frequency of repetitions over a longer and longer duration is, is that is that roundabout what you do or do you mix things up i'd say generally yes um with the strength endurance protocols i use i will allow athletes to increase their pace um definitely uh i do usually start with and this is i can't remember why i made this decision but um probably just it's probably empirical to be honest. Um, I will increase their, their, the length of time that they're under load. Like say they're doing like a double long cycle or they'll do a double clean into a press back into the rack, double clean into a press back into the rack. They're doing X amount of repetitions over two minutes. Then I'll just say, okay, now you're going to do two and a half. I usually add about 30 seconds when I um, increase every couple of workouts and then I go, okay, we're going to go three minutes and then I work them up to four minutes. And I usually use a similar work to rest that I would use if, if the athletes were doing like aerobic power work. So I might have equal work and rest at the two minutes and then at the three minutes, then when they get to four, I only give them like three minutes rest. Mm. And then once they can accomplish that, I, I like now for, this is purely for wrestlers, and this evolved just out of me training wrestlers and to see what they were capable of. 40 minutes total seemed to be like a high volume training session with load, with like a strength endurance. So 40 minutes. Let's, so once they can do 40 minutes, four minutes on, three minutes off. So that's seven minutes, 40 divided by seven for whatever many rounds that is. I, I don't about know. Six, about six. six. There you go. Yeah. So then I would... From that point forward, then I would start to work on their pace. And their, their pace will reach a ceiling because it's not a – using kettlebells and doing long cycle is – your pace is quite dependent on your height. 
So when I, I often lift with one of my wrestlers or condition with her, mostly because she, she likes to have the, the company. It sucks having to do this stuff on your own. We're the same height. She's a bit stronger than I am. Okay, let's be honest, everybody. She's a hell of a lot stronger than I am. <laughs> but I'm a legend in my own mind. So I'm, I, I'm working out with her. We're usually going about the same amount of weight. Um, and we work on increasing that piece. But because we're the same height, the distance the bell is traveling over our body height and limb length is the same, right? Are you following me? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So we both will have a ceiling at how many repetitions we can get in in, in four minutes. If I all of a sudden grew, which would be amazing to be six foot six, that'd be cool. Um, then I would, ch- then that would change because then I'm, the, the, the bell is actually covering more distance. Ironically that you asked me this, I got an email today from an online client and I only have two online clients. I don't do much of that because I like to be there in person, but this guy's a BJJ athlete. He's, he's more um, amateur level recreation, but he actually asked me about a metronome. I went, oh, dude, this is smart. You're thinking. So I set my metronome up when I was emailing him back, and I just kind of went through the motions. And I'm going to actually have to try this because I do think that a metronome might be a useful way of establishing a pace with load um, initially. And then what will happen, like for me, I've been lifting kettlebells for quite a long time. It's been about uh, 11 years. They first sort of came out like what are these things I want to try them um yeah so now I don't really worry about keeping my pace because I have kind of an internal pace right but I and then I can push the pace and or slow down my pace depending on on what I'm doing so another option too is like like anything you can increase the load so if you do that um then you know you're not going to increase all of these variables all at once and it's a little bit of uh tweaking observing and um, modifying as need be. Mm, cool, cool. So vague, I know. It's a bit of a vague answer. No, no, it, 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 it gives some really good information. You, you've really good information. Um, I did have a question. Another thing that popped to mind was we've talked sort of using kettlebells, and there's there's a like a variety of exercises people can use with the kettlebells. Uh, we've talked sprinting as well. Do you use any other modalities that you like? Yeah, I uh, actually like battling ropes. Um, there's been some, like some of the research I've read about oxidative capacity or ability in, in wrestlers is quite full body. So when they look at my, like mitochondrial enzyme, enzymatic density in different um, muscle groups, when they, the Russians are biopsied, these poor athletes, um, it, it's interesting that they are quite oxidative in their upper body. And we could argue, yeah, for sure, it's probably from the sport, right? Just from being at practice and using their upper body. So there's that aspect. So I'll use the ropes sometimes when athletes don't have adequate sparring partners or they're not getting enough mat time um, or they've been, you know, there's been times where like the university's closed for a week because it's Christmas break, right? So now what are we going to do for training? So I'll use the ropes in very similar manners that I would use sprinting or I would use the kettlebells or I would use, um, I wouldn't necessarily use ropes for strength endurance because they're, they're too fatiguing because grip fatigues, um, you know, and, and with ropes, you have to hold on with the kettlebell. You can relax your grip at certain points in the movement. So I like kettlebells. I love jump squats and jump squats. I'll, 
I'll allow the athlete to choose between a barbell, dumbbells, um, or a weighted vest. My preference is a weighted vest um, because it's sort of the least cumbersome if you're jumping with it. And I'll use though that particular modality for power endurance. Or with the ropes, I'll use that for power endurance or speed endurance, depending on what I'm what motion I'm using with the ropes. And I'm I'm pretty boring with ropes. You know, I kind of go alternating waves or double waves and that's about it. You know, I don't do like a thousand different um, rope exercises because I think now we're getting away from choosing a, a tool, um, you know, and then getting away from using it in a very specific way, right, as a protocol. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, and I also mentioned hills. I am a big fan of, of using hills for, for speed work and for sprinting, especially with athletes that are not accustomed to linear sprinting. It's a lot easier on the body, and I very rarely get, you know, hamstring issues. Sometimes when athletes are more trained, I'll have them do um, uphill jumping. So rather than using the weighted vest, I may choose to um, build speed slash power endurance with uphill jumps, like frog jumps, which is actually a pretty traditional wrestling movement. And some of the stuff I've actually learned from wrestling coaches. And what I've done as the strength and conditioning person is really just added a little bit more nuance to it, right? So more specificity in terms of the actual movement and the rest period and the work, that kind of thing, versus like, I'm just going to kill you with a bunch of jumps up a hill and see who the last man standing is, right? Mm, for sure, for sure. And, and of course, if like wrestling coaches, it's, it's been around wrestling for a long time. There's, there's highly likely there's a good reason for say frog jumps being around wrestling for a long time. Like there must be a reason why they like it and, and uh, Absolutely. probably makes sense to use them. I agree. Um, yeah. I think, I think there's a lot we can learn from coaches, you know, go to a practice and see kind of, and some of the drills they do are pretty neat and then you can maybe tweak them a little bit or, or change them slightly, but it give you some really give, give your listeners really good ideas. Right. So. Oh yeah, 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 and not just not just for say those combat sports like the line drills they have in say Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, for instance, or in wrestling the line drills. Like those things are gold for almost any athlete just to build like a movement syllabus or general athleticism, whatever you want to call it. They they really are absolutely. You bet. Um, I want to go now big picture. How do you fit these methods in? Uh, into say a general preparation, a specific preparation, then maybe for a wrestler or a fight camp or, or, or jujitsu. So how does it go? General prep, what do you do in the general preparation? What do you do in the specific preparation? What do you do in, in, in the last sort of six weeks, eight weeks, whatever that you, that you would say is your fight camp period? Yeah, um, with, with wrestlers, um, first of all, the, the athletes that I see now are all on the international scene. So, the first thing I do is sit down with them and we map out what their most important um, events are. So because we're in an Olympic year, um, the first big event for my athletes was actually just, just passed, was in June. It was what they call the World Team Trials. And that was to determine who's actually going to the World Championships this year. So in this case, it would have been June. I would have had to peak them for that event peak them again for September, which is when the world championships are. Then they have Olympic trials in April. 
So because I, and that's actually a pretty heavy year in terms of preparation and, and peaking and making sure people are, are really on board with, um, you know, what we're doing and uh, are, are ready to go. Now, maybe I'll back up for a second. The, the athletes that I am training have hit every single target that I want them to hit physically. They're strong enough. I tested their VO2, like a basic fitness test. They're fit enough. Um, they can do, actually, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I asked Mallory, one of my girls, I said, okay, uh, at the end of the workout, we're going to do like this ab exercise. It was like really high volume kind of crunch type thing, which I don't typically prescribe. But I just wanted to see what, what she could do. And she did like, I don't know, like 150 in a row and was like talking the whole time, right? Like clearly that's not a stress for her. Um, one of my other girls is at a camp right now in, in Japan. And there's a video of her carrying two females on, on one on either shoulder, like walking across the mat. That was a drill that they have to do. So clearly like, you know, these, she's not weak, right? She's strong enough. So what we're assuming right now is the athletes that I'm seeing, when you, when we think about general preparation and accumulation phases, I'm not really worried or concerned about getting these kids their baseline of fitness up. So their local muscular endurance is good. It's, it hits the target. Their strength hits the target. They can squat, they can press, they can pull and clean exactly where they should be for their sport. Um, and they're, you know, if I did a, a beat test or something like that on them, um, which tends to be quite a typical test or a 300 yard shuttle, their fitness would be, would be quite good. Right. And, and, the, and a VO2 is fairly robust anyways. It, there's not a lot that they're training all year round. There shouldn't be too much that would make it, you know, go down, right. Or go up. So that's kind of, that's the interesting piece with the population I'm seeing. They don't get out of shape. So they, you know, that's, I think what's quite unique about wrestling versus like I've trained MMA fighters and typical kind of situation with them has been, they get ready for a fight, they fight and they get out of shape. They disappear. And this could be like, and these, you know, not just, these are some pros and, and then some amateurs. It's just a different culture, different type of sport, right? Even, you know, even football players, um, you know, a lot of the guys I work with December, January, they don't train much because their bodies are destroyed from the season. So they are often becoming detrained, but I'm starting to educate them. Look guys, like I can give you modifications to maintain some of these qualities while your body heals, but you have to understand you will detrain, like your lactate threshold will detrain in 10 days. That's the physiology. And that's, you know, because I'm a physiology professor, like my brain often goes over to that direction and I go, oh, snap, here we go. So setting the stage here for your listeners, I've got athletes that are fit all year round. So really what we're manipulating is, is based around practices and travel because they go to camps. My USA girls go to camps all over the world. So two of them are in Japan right now. So I've got travel and, and you know, now they're, they're training like ridiculous amounts because it's a camp. So the coach will have them on the mats probably twice a day and how much SNC they're going to get. They have their programs. They, they've, they're educated enough to know when they can insert lifts, but it, it's hard to say kind of when that's going to go in. So it doesn't really fit this sort of like perfect 
idea of an off season and a you know a preseason and an in season, it becomes a game of fatigue management um, and making sure that the qualities are preserved that they already have. And then when we get into more specific phases, that's when I start to hit them with more speed and power work. And I will, and I'll still keep in, I will keep in aerobic power work and usually once a week leading up to a, an event. And the reason for this is because of a plasma volume loss and weight cutting, I have some theories around that. So when I see aerobic power, that might be a workout where they're on like a bike or a stair mill, like a machine doing like, I don't know, three minute intervals, uh, three minutes off times five rounds of that. Heart rates are over 92%. So that's about the only time I have a heart rate monitors on them. No, I don't do anything really velocity based with, with wrestlers because they're not running. Um, and, and that for that reason is, is keeping high levels of plasma volume for travel and weight cutting, leading right up to an event. With respect to glycolytic peaking, I leave that to the coaches. So the coaches will shark tank, which is like more MMA style, right? But they'll do it in wrestling too, where the athletes will go to practice and they'll have like four fresh opponents coming at them. They'll do three minute live, they call it matches with a minute off three minutes on or no sorry 30 seconds off the wrestling three minutes on 30 seconds off and they'll do that multiple rounds and then maybe they'll have a break and they'll do it again they call it match day or live day so the coaches are really good about making sure these athletes do this and they'll and they'll still taper them so they don't do it right up into their event they'll still taper them about 10 days out from doing that. So my philosophy is the coaches take care of the enzymatic adaptations and the glycolytic pathways. So the burn. I take care of all the peripheral work, which is speed and power, and I maintain the, their strength levels. I tend to be a very low volume girl um, when it comes to a coach, when it comes to peaking. So for example, I keep total reps per exercise under 10 for a couple of weeks leading up to a major contest. So they're still doing cleans and squats, but they're doing maybe three sets of two at 88% of their maximum for a few weeks leading up. And then we'll taper them out. Usually seven days, I'll taper out their strength work. I'll, I'll hammer their aerobic power up to you know three days out if need be. Um, speed work we'll do right up into the day before but then the speed stuff transition into mat stuff so what we've been doing on the track or on a hill they travel and they get there and they know what to do with wrestling for speed and they know their work to rest for their speed because I need because we all know that well maybe your readership doesn't know but speed detrains fast neuromuscular stuff detrains fast so we in reaction skills too so that becomes the real focus of the last seven days while they're cutting weight and they're pre preparing mentally and technically and tactically for that particular event. Do you, do you have any more questions? Because I didn't really give you exact. Um, no, no, that, that, that's, that's, I've, got, I've got heaps of questions from that. I've, I've, uh, oh, no. I've just been writing them down. Don't worry, don't worry. Um, but okay. one, of the, one of them is on these, the training period. So we've talked about speed. 
maybe you got to touch base on speed in the last week before a competition. Um, you talked about sort of glycolytic lactate stuff. You've got to touch base on that maybe 10 days before your, before your competition. The aerobic power um, and the plasma volume, you do that for, to assist with the weight cutting. Uh, is, is I do. And you know what? Like, I've had physiologists argue with me on that point, and I'm happy for people to do that. Um, I've done it. I've asked my girls, how do you feel? And they're like, I feel good. I feel good. I don't feel tired in my matches. Um, you know, their weight cuts are easy. The more aerobically fit you that these kids are, I think, um, the better they lose, they lose weight. You know, it's, it's easier for people that are more conditioned to weight cut people that are not mm, and and the actual stimulus in that last week why what what is the reasoning that that it would help with say the the weight cut well i honestly it's just pure glycogen depletion so it's pure calories sure yeah. so i mean that's the only danger with it right like and i tell them that i say okay what's really important is during this weight cutting period when you're reducing your intake maybe even reducing carbohydrate intake that if you are consuming um, carbohydrate that it's going to be it has to happen afterwards I, like that carbohydrate meal has to happen after the, that basically glycogen depleting session and that would be sort of the aerobic power type work that I'm doing or even the really long um, sparring that they're doing right three minutes on 30 seconds off where they're being shark tank that's extremely depleting as well so um, and we I have a nutrition person that, that does all that I don't do anything with weight cutting um, I've, I've done it. I've done their weight cuts with them on purpose um, to and trained with them to experience it. I'm a bit weird like that <laughs> because I need, I need to know what it feels like. I need to know kind of like why the RPEs are higher. And of course they are, you feel, you feel depleted doing, doing those sessions. Mm -hmm. um, but by the time they weigh in and refuel and are ready to go, they, they bounce back and they feel good as long as I don't do anything extreme. So I keep notes on everything. When an athlete performs well, they, they have a good result, but they also tell me that they felt great, they felt energized, they felt, they didn't feel depleted, then if I'm gonna peak them again for another event, I'm gonna follow that same road. I don't change anything. So when one of my athletes did really well at World Team Trials in 2018 in the spring, um, when she went to World Championships last fall we followed a very similar um, peaking tactic and she got a bronze medal she felt great so i'm not i don't i don't know if it was what we did but i don't want to be extreme and change anything if, if we had some good positive results from that mm. so mm. no look it's uh, for the listeners out there and the, the weight cut such an important consideration because normally low calories and high performance don't really go hand in hand but in all your combat sports, they've got to go hand in hand and you've got to figure out a way to make those things work. Um, so it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of sense. It's so tough. It's a tough, it's a tough part of it. And then with girls, you know, you add things like a menstrual cycle on top of that. It, it is really, these are tough, tough athletes. It's really, yeah, that part of it is, is the least glamorous um, part of being a world level or an Olympian, right? So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you two uh, on two kind of uh, aspects of sort of assessing or having having some guidelines for athletes before they before they do this. What are your sort of rule of thumbs for how strong is strong enough um, before you start doing this power and speed or strength endurance and 
and how strong is strong enough for the actual sport you work in. Uh, the second question is, how do you kind of know whether somebody needs more power endurance or they need more speed endurance or they need more strength endurance? And, and then does that influence what you do with them in terms of if they don't need any strength endurance, don't worry about it. Um, we're just going to do the stuff they do need. Or do you always give them a little bit of something in there? Um, well, sort of the first question, uh, how strong is strong enough? Well, obviously, not obviously, maybe, maybe we go to the literature and maybe we look at the norms and we, we see where our athlete measures up. That, that's typically where I, I used to start with athletes. Um, and then I, I'm a really big fan of trunk strength. Okay. So you kind of get in our industry, sometimes different schools of thought and people say, if you, if you squat and you clean, that's core training, that's enough, right? And then they've got other people that suggest, you know, like a million different chopping exercises and carries and then that's core training. I was trained by Pavel Tatsulin, who's a kettlebell coach and instructor and a martial artist. And I learned from him um, 10 years ago. I started learning from Pavel and now I'm fortunate enough to, to be mentored by Pavel when I have questions. And I learned a lot about trunk stability from him or strength. And I'm, I'm a big fan of you can't really ever be too strong through the midsection. So I do, and, and through the neck. And I kind of consider that as your sort of second trunk. So I tend to, even if athletes are hitting numbers on their squats and on their cleans relative to their mass, I continue to build their trunk strength because it does show up in more unpredictable or aberrant explosive type movements. I'm not one, I'm not so kind of, I guess, far right wing to say that an athlete has to squat twice their mass before they can do a deck jump, for example. There are schools of thought in that area. If an athlete can attack the ground quickly, have very, very great, um, great ground reaction force, very, very fast. They're very fast off the ground. They have great control. Um, then I will allow them to do that particular task and use it as a training stimulus, even if their squat isn't twice their body mass. Because the way I look at it is the two are completely different skills. Moving a weight slowly is a different skill than stepping off and landing and jumping. I think there's correlations and there's relationships between skills, but they are still different. This is kind of my opinion. Just like I think a goblet squat is a different skill than a front squat. I don't think it's a regression. It's a different skill. So I don't know. I might, sure. might be kind sure. of upsetting people right now, but that is my opinion. That's why, you know, I think an overhead squat is not a progression of a back squat, for example. I think it's a different squat and some people can do it and other, other people can't because of lots of reasons. So how strong is strong enough is a million dollar question. I have one girl right now that is like absolutely ridiculously strong in the weight room. Um, but when I tested her on her endurance, that's where we went because she was, she was, and I can do different kinds of endurance tests to know whether it's a speed endurance. Cause I'll just put her through a protocol. I'll put her through a protocol that someone else I know can do. And if she's suffering or she's becoming acidic, which is indicative when somebody gets slower, right? 
um, the rest periods I would have had to lengthen because she's just not able to uh, to resynthesize the phosphocreatine fast enough because her aerobic system isn't well trained or whatever. So all to assess the the like you said the strength endurance the speed endurance the power endurance I would I just put people through a protocol and I monitor it and see where they're lacking and then that becomes my rationale for what I'm going what buckets I'm going to focus on and where we're going to put our, our time and energy. I'm always a fan of working power and speed before a competition, but there's no rules to say you can't be working on that in the background when they're not competing, if that's a weakness. Mm -hmm. So in a training program, there should be primary emphasis, secondary emphasis, and tertiary emphasis, right? So maybe the primary emphasis for this block is speed, and then the you know, tertiary emphasis is max strength or grind strength. Maybe on the next block, maybe it, it shifts based on how athletes are performing on different protocols, doing different tasks. So you, you, you can't know any of this until you start coaching people. And that's why I sort of was delicate when I said, yeah, I don't really online coach because to me, it's a bit of an oxymoron in the sense that I'm not coaching. I'm, I'm writing a program. I'm writing a prescription, but I really have, I can't make any other decisions because I'm not observing anything. I, I, I don't really know what's going on unless I get them to videotape themselves, which is what I have to do and, and send me the footage so I can kind of look from there. And that's the art of the science. And that's the, the principle of individualization, right? Is to be able to, as a coach, to deviate from your quote unquote periodized plan immediately without hesitation and without worry oh my gosh, I'm not following it exactly like this. This is the end of the world. Like at the end, end of the day, like our jo job, I think, is to fill the gaps, fill the physical gaps. So if you can identify a physical gap, and sometimes they just come up. Mm -hmm. I might have a football player jump backwards over a cone and I go, oh, dang, okay, you got some work to do on this, this, and this now. And I had never asked them to do that before because it's not part of my testing battery. It's impossible to test everything. So training is testing. Every training session is a test, is an assessment and evaluation. We observe, we tweak, we train some more. And when we, we retest, it's a process. They say trusty process, eh? right? So we trust it, we keep going, we try to get better, we try to fill the cracks and there's no such thing as being ready. You know, when an athlete, like, feel like I'm ready. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. So that's the sports side side. I'm like, you know, we've done what we can to, to prepare you and just go out there and, and have fun. Do your thing. Enjoy yourself, you know. Soak it in. I don't really like the term being ready because I kind of, maybe that's a growth mindset, right? We're, we're always evolving and getting better at things. Yeah, so. for sure. For sure. No, I, 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 I Definitely like what you said. Like I'll give I'll give an example myself. So I've got a sprinter. We go to do some sit-ups one day. I've I've never actually assessed his trunk strength. You know what I mean? We've done counter movement jumps, other other hoo-ha. The lad can't do a sit-up like an old school style sit-up without his feet going all up in the air. I'm like, wow. My grandmother would say, you probably need to be able to do that. Um, you're going to be doing that for the next like month. You know what I mean? So you can do those well. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you don't really know. And, and I think some athletes, they kind of like that. They're like, oh, 
like for example, the renegade row exercise. I love it. It's such a great exercise because it immediately just exposes people that are really strong, mm. you know, conventionally. And, uh, you know, and, and really like what is strength? Strength, is it the ability to exert force or is it the ability to exert force at a given velocity, like under a, a really finite set of biomechanical conditions? Right. So, you know, it's, it, I think we're always just trying to plug gaps and that's why going to practice and watching your athletes compete, um, watching film, watching tape is so important. Like I have my, my football coaches that I work with, they're great to say, Carm, can you come into the meeting room today with the coaching staff and just look at this tape and just like, what do you see? And they, they often, they're so good. They won't bias me. What do you see? And I'm like, okay that's weird you know he, he pushes off really well off his right leg but his left leg sort of looks like there's a leg yeah yeah yeah. that's that's what we see okay okay let's see what you know and then bring him in the gym and do some testing and maybe we need to get the therapy team involved because maybe there's an injury there that he's been compensating on you don't know and there's no like perfect answer and there's no exact route mm, in, in development i think we're doing the best we can and, and try to Eat for all, right? Hey, I, w I wanted to go back a back a step. I want to ask you what what are your you talked about chunk and neck strength being really important. What are your chunk and neck strength standards? Like what would be like just how I mentioned like hey you should be able to do maybe ten old school sit ups uh, coming up and touching your toes or whatever without your feet moving off the ground not attached to anything. Like just for me, what what would be your chunk and neck strength uh, standards that you'd like? Criteria, yes, great one. I um. First of all, I train the neck um, like I do the trunk using a lot of like resisted movement and, and isometrics. I uh, don't train the neck as a mover. So like attaching like a headband and, and moving the neck, but I might attach the headband and have the athlete do like lunge with the headband on and it's like yanking them off balance. So again, that kind of withstanding that perturbation in the in the frontal plane i wouldn't call it a perturbation we'll just call it a frontal plane stress um but i have been able to measure um endurance on bridging so you know when you think about that traditional wrestler bridge where their necks in hyperextension and the top of their heads on the, so they're they're supine their knees are bent feet are flat on the floor and their neck is hyperextended. And so the top of their head is on the mat. That's the traditional wrestling bridge. Been shown to be a bit compressive through the cervical spine. So, um, and this is stuff I actually learned from a few of my uh, European mentors. And, and they said, you know what? We'll get them bridging neutral. So bridge on the back of the head. So feet are on the mat, bum is off the mat, shoulder blades off the mat. The only points of contact are base of the skull, neck is neutral. So no hyperextension, no flexion. They'll want to flex and they'll want to put their shoulder blades down and both feet are on the mat. My top athletes can hold that position for two minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's a good little test for your, your readers. When athletes are weak or in that position, I allow them to cheat off their elbows. So they'll put their elbows on the mats like a, so now they've got five points of contact, right foot, left foot, head, elbow, elbow. And then as they get stronger, they start to take their elbows off the mat. So 
that makes sense. Because some athletes cannot hold that position. So that's what I would do for one of the ways I, I train the neck for strength endurance in an isometric fashion. I'd also flip them over and go um, face down. So toes are on the mats, hands are on their back, low back, forehead on the mat, neck neutral, hold two minutes. We want equal front to back. Mm. If they can't do that, then I might elevate them, put their forehead on a bench, like you would uh, like to, uh, you know, modify push-ups, right? You put their hands on a bench. With respect to deep neck flexors, I also do um, it's sort of more of like a physiotherapy type exercise where the person's lying on their back and they just, they barely lift their head up and they train their deep neck flexors in that position. But you know what? I've also found if people do like warm-ups with TRX rows, like inverted rows, they can get the same kind of training effect for their deep neck flexor. So I don't always like add that, but I don't particularly like TRX rows for my athletes. I don't think it's hard enough. So I don't prescribe it unless it's a warm up. I go, oh, put it in as a warm up exercise. It's great. But as far as like an actual training stress, I mean, I have girls that can tie a 15 kilo plate around their waist and do a full pull up. So I'm not going to you know, give them something that's not going to, to stress their they're pulling um, strength, right? It, it, mm. To me, it's like kind of apples and oranges. So that's what I do for, for strength endurance in an isometric fashion for the neck. And then I, to train it, I also do a lot of perturbation work. So where I'm actually pushing on their neck in different positions, eyes closed, so that way they're having to, to react um, to that. And then of course, like depending on concussions, which is a reality in, in collision and con combative sport, Sometimes part of the rehab might be involve neck strengthening if, if the concussion was based more around, um, you know, if the, if the therapist has deemed that the concussion might have resulted from, you know, weakness or a lack of, of the timing of the sensory motor system in the head. You know, I don't know if I completely buy it because if you think about the way the ankle sprains, you know, if you're, if you're playing basketball and you jump and you land and you twist your ankle, you could have been doing all kinds of like proprioceptive work prior to, but the, 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 the speed at which that injury occurs is just so fast that the sensory motor system, there's just no time for it to, to kick in and stabilize that joint. And I, I do think sometimes the neck is similar, like in a whiplash type, type setting. Um, you know, I think we, we've a lot to learn in that area still. So I just stick with the bridges and, uh, Anecdotally, some of the girls have told me they don't get stingers at all anymore. So um, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. You know whether it was that or not, I I, I don't know for sure. Cool. So those are great, some great guidelines for the neck, not just for uh, say combat sports, but all the football codes as well. Um, for sure. Yeah. Trunk strength. Trunk strength. What what are, what are your markers for trunk strength? Um, I'm going I'm to go out and try those neck strength things as soon as we're getting off this call too. Yeah, but. there you go, right? You'll be like, you'll have a big, just don't do it on anything that you know, you're know you going to dent in your forehead when you're walking around with an S or something. Um, <laughs> for trunk strength, I'm, uh, I love the dragon flag, which is a Bruce Lee exercise. I put it in all the time. It's nasty. It's hard. Um, and, and we, I, you know, I have the athletes start with the concentrics, phase the movement, and once they get good at that, then you know, you talk about kids with rib flare, where if you want to correct your rib flare, make them dragon flag and, and they'll be good. That'll go away. I love renegade rows, which is like a kind of like a moving plank. Uh, like, 
um, I don't mind those Copenhagen exercises where athletes um, are working their, their groin at the same time as working kind of a side bridge and some shoulder stability. And I love front squats. I, I, I will admit it to me, front squats are, and overhead squats are really the czars of um, trunk uh, strength and stability. And then I have one other drill that we call the uh, dead turtle. And I did not come up with this name. My athletes came up with the name. They actually called the dead turtle wrestle. So I'm going to try to describe this as best I can for your listeners. So everybody hopefully knows what a dead bug is, right? So a dead bug is you're lying on your back and your knees and hips are bent at about 90 degrees. And your arms are outstretched in front of you like a zombie. Does it make sense? your head's on the floor, your arms are straight out in front, your knees are bent at 90 degrees, your feet are not on the floor, you're in a dead bug. And the traditional dead bug would be to possibly um, maintain that uh, rib to hip kind of relationship while the arm and leg extend. So the arm extends overhead and maybe the opposite leg reaches up. Well, if my athlete can do a dragon flag, I'm pretty much sure they can crush the dead bug, right? The dead bug is far too easy for most of these people that I work with. So we decided we're gonna, we're gonna up the ante here. We're gonna, we're gonna add a bit to the dead bug. So we do it with a partner. And what the partner does is kneels down beside the person, we'll call them the dead turtle. They're lying, the turtle's on their back, they're lying, on their back, they're a dead turtle, partner's kneeling beside them. The partner grabs hold of the inside of the left knee and grabs hold of the inside of the opposite right elbow and creates a stress across the midsection like a diagonal line from armpit to hip. So I'm pushing, like I am yanking the knee away from the midline of the body and I am pushing that arm like I'm trying to flatten it against the mat and the partner is withstanding that force. So now I'm not only am I training this athlete, I'm assessing them because I can feel it. I can feel where they're weak. And then I'm going to rock them side to side like a dead turtle on their back. Maybe it's an alive turtle, actually, Joseph. Let's, let's back this up. This turtle is alive. This turtle is like ready to rock. Okay. So, and you rock them back and forth and I just do it for time. So maybe 10 seconds at first up to up to 30 and then I let them relax and do the other side stress them in that way so I, I like partner drills for um, for trunk strength you know you can do different types of wrestling exercises like underhooks from kneeling positions tall kneeling positions because you're really trying to resist um, excessive extension right and I like medicine balls. So like throwing a medicine ball at somebody as hard as you can in an overhead toss and having them catch it above their head and decelerate that load is a phenomenal way to train the trunk and teach the midsection to be reactive. And then of course your, you know, your combative coaches has a, have a ton of ideas. Like they punch their athletes in their stomach and sure, you know, like that makes sense to me. So yeah, I'm not very um, forgiving when it comes to the exercises I choose for the trunk. I make athletes do like, uh, what are they called? Like glute ham raises, like on one leg, mm. stuff like that. So it's not, you know, always bilateral. So that we can train the glutes and the hamstrings too. 
make sure we hit the groin and uh, the adductors as well. And uh, there we have it. There's some awesome. core work. Awesome. Awesome. That's some great ideas. I usually pick three exercises. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's some, some really great ideas there. Uh, and you've done really well uh, sort of explaining that to the, the your dead turtle, explaining that to the to the audience. Um okay. I I want to finish up for coaches out there. Where would they start? So say they want to do these, uh, they now know kind of like the strength, you've got to be a certain amount of strength to start the stuff or or to get into it. Um now, are they going to start in the first week? They're going to do a power endurance, a speed endurance, a strength endurance workout, see what the person's bad at, and then from there, figure out what to do in the, in the weeks following that. Um, how would you recommend coaches out there start with athletes that they want to start implementing some of this stuff? Well, uh, you could, it depends on their background, right? So I'm a big fan of like assessing training history. So if you get an athlete in that's got, you know, 10 years of, of, formal training experience under with supervision they probably have a good base and you may not need to do much assessing you could just program but let's assume that's not the case let's assume it's a maybe a freshman at a university first year kid that's 17 18 years old hasn't had a lot of formal coaching uh you could i personally would maybe do all three in the same week like a monday wednesday friday but it also depends on their mat time, like how much they're, they're, they're practicing. So let's maybe assume they're not. Maybe they're off the mats for a particular point of time and you've got them in the weight room doing their, their strength training where they're working and resting. And then maybe on other days, they're doing their strength endurance on one day. And then another day, they're doing power endurance. Another day, speed endurance. When I'm peaking international athletes, they do um, power endurance and speed endurance in the same week. Just, just so I'm clear on that, I didn't mention that earlier. I tend to use only vertical prioritization. I train all qualities all the time. And I do this because I think periodization in, in of itself is flawed from a exercise physiology standpoint. I think it ignores how quickly qualities do actually detrain. So I am a big fan of shuffling things and having emphasis, but hitting everything and maybe that's a bias i have i'm very open to other options um i've also back in the day met charlie francis and al vermeil and a lot of like really um well-known coaches that were working with high level athletes are kind of pioneers right in our field and they were doing this so in my early 20s these are the people that that taught me a lot of what i already know and i'm I am hesitant to let go of that because I'm getting some pretty good results um, from not only from testing, but because I'm a coach and a former athlete from winning, winning medals, um, going to Olympics, things like that. So I think that that's really, you know, that does also speak, speak for itself, but then I can argue against that and say, well, I'm also blessed to have some very talented people to work with too. Right. So who knows, maybe I'm completely off the mark and I should do more of like a block style of periodization. I think when people need to be immersed in something, like imagine an athlete has no IQ when it comes to training, meaning they don't know how to do anything. They have no idea how to squat, no idea how to clean. Well, then it would make sense that you might want to lessen the variety in terms of training um, 
stresses and protocols and just work in the weight room on some basic strength training and put them on a on a on a machine-based cardio program for the first two months because they don't know how to train they don't know how to do exercises right so we have to consider what when we make decisions on programming it's it's based upon feasibility it's based on accessibility it's also based on the iq of that athlete and what they know how to do on their own when you're not there. Um, did I answer your question or do you want to go a little further into that? No, no, it was good. It was good. It was good. Yeah. But basically, basically I, I do want to prod you a little bit more on that. And I, I agree in terms of, uh, in terms of um, like you, if, you, if you're not doing a certain quality for a big block of time, how can you expect to maintain or get better at that quality? So it makes sense to me. You, you do a bit of everything all the time. And you just have varying weights of how much you're going to do those things. Um, uh, absolutely. I, I think it seemed, that seems to be, especially like in MMA and in, in the, all these sports that, that have so much going on, right? Like if you're a power lifter, that's what you do. That's your sport. Well, you're probably powerlifting every day, like weightlifting. You're strength training all the time. You might do like 20 minutes on the bike three days a week to, to, to not have any like heart disease. And <laughs> that's, some flexibility work but it's, it's a lot simpler in terms of your management of uh, all of these different stresses right and then the qualities you need to perform at a high level like you can neglect endurance it, it's not really going to probably impact performance at a, at a power lifting meet maybe i don't know i'm not a power lifter but that's my guess yeah. i know it's yeah it's wonderful Carmen. It's, look it's been it's been absolutely terrific talking to you today um, I've learned to heap. I've been taking a, a truckload of notes and uh, I've got some things that I'm uh, already thinking of applying and, uh, and just sparked, sparked my mind. I want to finish up though with a few little questions. Um, these are really quick, quick little things. Um, you can elaborate. They can be single word answers. But uh, the first one is, what are you most excited next 12 to 18 months about developing, say, in your own professional uh, practice? Um, for you what what's Carmen Bot going to improve in herself in the next 12 to 18 months actually I'm going back to school to study sports psych wow. <laughs> so I'm excited about that I'm uh yeah so I'm taking a bit of a right hand turn I'll still be in the game of strength and conditioning for sure but uh I'm really curious about behavior and and motivation and mental skills and I need I need to be more formally trained in that area so I'm going to do a mental performance consultant designation. So I'm, I won't be a sports psychologist, but I will be uh, licensed to work with athletes on mental skills for, for sports. So that's what I'm excited about. Really Very excited. Cool. Very cool. And then what's, what's on your uh, bedside table reading at the moment? What's on your bookshelf? Oh my God. Oh, you know what? It's embarrassing. I'm teaching five courses this semester, so I, I haven't really been reading much, but but I just um, reread Mlad and Jovanovic's Hit Training Manual. I just reread that a couple of weeks ago on vacation, and uh, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy that book. Um, I think he did a great job. So, mm, cool. There you we'll go, Martin. Shout out to you, mate. There you go. <laughs> um, last, last little question. Uh, what's been one thing you've gone to a course or a seminar or something, and you've just gone? Boom, light bulb goes off in your head. Hey, I can use that tomorrow. This is my like profound moment of, of my career. Uh, what, everyone's had these moments. What, what's been yours? 
It's honestly, anytime I spend time with uh, Joe McCollum at University of British Columbia, he's the head strength coach there. He's not well known, but he's one of my best friends and he's probably one of the smartest people I know. So when I see stuff on Twitter, I'll, I'll usually message him and say, well, what do you think about this? You know, or I'll go in and, and just watch him work and watch him coach and pick his brain. And, and every time he's so practical because he coaches all day every day and he was an athlete himself he's been immersed in sport he knows a ton about a lot of different sports he's a real um student of the game he's funny I, yeah it would be joe for sure awesome yeah. awesome hey uh so for the listeners out there how do they get more information about carmen bot twitter instagram uh what would yeah i mean if people want to you know what would be cool is people try the dead turtle and uh Put it on Instagram. I'm CoachBot on Instagram, but I would love to see people doing it or interpret um, this this really poor explanation of what I, what, what I think it is. So they can contact me there. They sure Twitter um, is great. I'm, I'm not on Twitter maybe as much, and I, I don't really use Facebook. So I would say probably Instagram is the best. Place. Awesome, awesome. Instagram at CoachBot. There you have it. Well. Carmen, it's been, like I said, terrific, absolutely terrific talking to you this, this, uh, this afternoon, evening. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Joseph. It was my pleasure. I just, I really hope that, um, you know, I aim to please and it, it is my weakness, everybody, that I'm a bit of a pleaser and I, I get nervous doing stuff like this because I, I want to, I'm trying to guess and anticipate what people want because I, I genuinely like to help. Um, especially young coaches. Uh, not that I'm on my way out, but um, you know, this uh, body by bot uh, <clears throat> will not be uh, young forever. So I'm hoping now as I move into my older years that I can just empower the next generation to be critical thinkers, to be skeptics, and, and to not be afraid to push people because we're, we're losing that a little bit um, in, our, in, in society, I think. Uh, you know, that you can have expectations and people will rise to the level of your expectations. I, I firmly believe that. Awesome. Great parting words. Well, thank you again, Carmen. It's been great. Thank you. You have a great day. So look, some great, brilliant, practical takeaways there from Carmen. I highly encourage you to pick up her book, Restless Edge, which will go into all the stuff she talked about, but in much, much more detail. Before I leave you, we've got to thank Val Performance once again, a great support of the ASCA and, of course, this podcast. There's some wonderful online workshops going on recently also that you should check out. And, of course, if interested in any of their products, make sure you check them out, valperformance.com. Can't recommend them highly enough. So we're finished with this episode. Make sure you catch up with our next show. Until you hear from me next, I'm Joseph Coyne, and this is the ASCA Podcast.